Welcome to Beyond Gameplay. I'm Kelly Dunlap. This month, we're talking about empathy, games, and empathy games. And in this episode, I talk with Osama Darius. He's the co-founder of the Montreal Independent Games Awards, and he's an advisory board member for the Montreal International Game Summit. He's developed games at studios including Gameloft, Ubisoft Montreal, and Minority Media. And he currently works at Warner Brothers Montreal as the senior game designer. I started our interview with the hard-hitting question that we all want to know, what is he working on at Warner Brothers? Well, the only thing I can say, which is like public information at this point, is that it's an DC Universe game Ooh. Uh, on console. That's it. Oh, man. All right. Well, I guess we have to stop there on that one. I'm but sorry. Yeah. <laughs> when, when we know more, we'll, we'll have you back so you can tell us more about it. Thank you. And now that we have the uh, the warm up, the easy questions out of the way, <laughs> going to move into the, the harder stuff, the hard hitting questions. Of course. Uh, the first of which is... Uh, well, what does empathy mean to you? Um, to me, empathy is just seeing things from someone else's point of view. I understand that that's not like the technical definition of what it is, uh, but that's how I perceive things. If I, if, if I want to um, talk to somebody and see from their point of view is I really want to live, I want to imagine myself um, being that person as much as possible. That's what empathy is. And then so how do you, as a game designer, translate that into games? Uh, we have a concept that we always look at, which is the user experience um, in games. And the user experience is exactly that. Uh, it's not to think of how you would play the game, but how to try to project onto um, the, one of the many different uh, types of players uh, the how they would experience this. So just because you set a path for the player, they might not follow it because of XYZ reason. Maybe at that point they don't see uh, the path that you laid out in front of them, or maybe they have a different motivation, or maybe something else that you foreshadowed beforehand is more attractive to them at that point. Um, so this user experience is part of empathy. It's part of like trying to... It, and it's so important because if you don't... the the designer that doesn't think of the user experience is not actually designing the game they think they're designing. They're designing the game they want to be designing. But like in the end, the, the, the player is going to be playing a very different game. So it's really interesting that that's the direction you took. Because typically when I talk to people about, you know, well, what is an empathy game or how do you put empathy into games? They instantly default to um, what you would consider a quote-unquote empathy game, something maybe like What Remains of Edith Finch, Gone Home, you know, Papa and Yo to bring up minority media again. And so it's really interesting that you instantly went to empathy as a tool for designing experiences for users. <laughs> uh, I don't think they're wrong, by the way. There are games who that try to uh, give the, like, uh, there are change, games that are trying to make other people feel empathy for others, and I think that's where people default to. Um, but for me, it like that's that's just an, another tool. It's not the it's not a it's just a, an intention or a methodology when you're creating your game. But most of the time, you have to keep in mind in my career, I'm making games that other people laid out for me. So they say we need a game that's like this, or we need a game for the, the that fits this criteria or this demographic or this marketplace. So I don't have, uh, and depending on what discipline of game design I'm specializing in at the uh, at that moment, if any, um, I don't have a lot of choice to to do that to tell an em empathetic story through the game. It, it it rarely happens. So for me, empathy is very different. It's just putting myself. It's a tool to put myself in in the player's shoes so I could make better games. 
And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you in particular is that when I think about the games that are typically tagged as empathy games, you know, ones that you see at Games for Change or that kind of get that attention, they tend to be made by um, small studios, indie studios, um, where they are, have the ability to kind of dictate their own story. And so I'm really curious for you, where does, other than, you know, user research, of course, does empathy have a space in AAA? Yes. Um, I, I'm going to... Uh, if it's okay with you, I'm going to talk about uh, Dungeon Hunter 4, which even though it wasn't typically console AAA, it was mobile AAA. We had like a big team. And um, the, the reason I want to bring specifically this game up is because I I was a narrative designer on it. And the task at the time was simple. We wanted to make a hack and slash game. Uh, we had a story already built up for Dungeon Hunter 1, 2, or 3. It takes place from the point of view of a... A tribe uh, called the Valentians, but the name is not important. The, the main thing is they have an antagonist who are these giant monstrous creatures. Um, they, they resemble, I guess, trolls or, or frost giants, something along those lines. And they th- these um, frost giants or trolls are set up as being evil and not very bright or whatever it is uh, for, through the language of the the, the uh, the tribe of the protagonist. And then eventually, like, I'm going to fast forward a lot and, and cut to the chase. Um, <laughs> you see demons start appearing and the demons are even more, uh, like, they're more imposing than these giants. Um, and your people blame the, the giants for summoning the demons because the demons have not been there. So someone had to have, uh, summon them and you start seeing clues like summoning circles and things like that. Um, and later on, you realize that, yes, the giants summoned uh, demons, but they actually did that in, in retaliation to your king of your tribe who summoned the demons first to take care of them. So the whole story for me from was about an arms race. Basically, both these groups had access to these demons or in my, you know, like the, the equivalent would be like nuclear weapons, right? And all of a sudden, these giants were your allies. And you were going through the game and not fighting them. And they were fighting with you against the demons to try to, um, you know, against a common enemy. And I, that was a message I want to give across is that we actually, in, in our, in, in the world, we have a lot of people that we, uh, antagonize for various different reasons. We have different values on them or different histories or generally the real thing is it's a struggle for power, et cetera. And through this struggle for power and acquiring this, uh, these means we forget that in the end we're all the same and we're all striving for the same thing and that we're actually if we don't stop it's going to be to our detriment how do you collaborate with a development team in order to get to that shared vision it's very different when it comes to both the indie space and the AAA space in the indie space uh, unless you have a client and that's a different story you can do whatever you want and we did when we were at minority we had a full full reign to do whatever we wanted with the story our, ourselves. By ourselves, I mean it was people in the studio who were making these calls. Nobody outside imposed them on us whatsoever. Everything the, we had full authority. And then when you go to AAA, it's not the case. It's not the case at all, and it can't be the case. There are too many players uh, involved. So what you end up having is uh, overall a game that is somewhat designed by committee a little bit, but. It has pockets of heart of, of like things that people put, you know, actually stories that, that the dev team wanted to tell that weren't, um, compromised by all of these layers, right? So you've talked a little bit about setting up a studio culture 
that embraces empathy or is at least empathetic to the uh, creative and fulfillment wants and desires of its teams at a managerial level. So I, I guess the next question is, where could where could the game studio use a little bit more empathy itself? I mean, because if that's the goal, like if, if the goal is to have a studio where um, those kinds of, um, I love how you put it, pockets of heart are allowed to flourish. And a lot of it comes from management. Where where are other places that maybe w- there could be some kind of intervention? And what do you think the outcome of that would be? That's a very heavy question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess I'll break it down into different uh, parts. Um, I feel from my limited experience is that most people uh, don't realize the value of a corporate culture. Even if some people pay lip service to it, most people in positions of authority don't realize to what extent uh, corporate culture can help them in production. Um, and that's unfortunate because if they were made to see, I know that they would change their ways or I would hope that they would change their ways. Um, it's really uh it's such a strong tool to to control a culture where you could actually allow people to be fearless in trying things that's really what it boils down to creativity can't exist when people are scared and um if they're worried about being called out or if they're worried about being shamed for their work or um be, to be made an example for or whatever it is uh, they cannot produce they're going to be walking on eggshells you have to allow people to try and to to um you know, feel confident to tell their own stories in the games. Um, so that's the first step is I, like getting that message across to the powers that be is a hard sell. Why is that? It's a hard sell because our industry wasn't set up with that in mind. Our industry from its humble roots in the 80s was a bunch of uh, programmers who didn't think about human beings in general and who were seeing success through coding and all of a sudden they had a lot of money and a lot of power and the ability to make decisions um and th- like that's why we had we we got atari i don't know if you know about the story of atari but the story of atari had the, the, it was an th- incredibly toxic environment but they were being showered with money so why would they change why would anybody change their ways if they're seeing success um so like the, that's the first step the first step is someone out there we we need a the pixar of video games we need uh, a company that is going to pay pay pave the way and show people how it is that we're supposed to um like employ this as a tool co- corporate culture as something positive um Lassiter aside um the, the a lot of things that they put into place in pixar is actually it's still very valid like I'm not going to pretend that corporate culture is going to fix everything and that you're not going to end up with uh, toxic people or whatever it is. Um, what you want to do is reduce that or limit that. You want to have a, an environment where toxic people have to hide and, and can't thrive. Um, that's the, the reality of that, you know, that, that, that's a more realistic approach to it, right? The main issue, initial, the initial issue is to try to show people exactly or the powers that be how important it is to have a corporate culture. Then we can start talking about what kind of corporate cultures we want. 
And so now I, I want to ask you a little bit more directly about uh, empathy games and empathy in games. Um, because in this series, you know, we've talked to Karen Schreier about the research and we talked to Peter McDonald and his views on um, kind of the, the limitations. Well, both of them actually talked about the limitations of empathy and some of the um, maybe not so great things about promoting empathy at, and empathy games. And so I'm really curious to get your take on kind of empathy games mm -hmm. as a big umbrella term. <laughs> um i i think actually i'm very happy that it is a thing that exists uh, i think it always existed to be honest i think there at, at any point in time if you look at um uh when games existed on the market you could point to a few of them and say these are empathy games of course maybe not to the same degree as uh as today uh but it, you you're going to be able to have games where uh, it's all about relationship building and uh like you know jrpgs were really big on that you like even just side quests were a big deal of that this person needs help are you going to help them you know you might get a reward at the end but there's still that like putting yourself in their shoes and try to see um how you could assist people or what they're going through and i used to read backstories that were completely unnecessary to try to get a good idea of who it is i was um, relating to or dealing with so i think to a smaller extent they've always been around uh, and but i'm very glad that they're actually getting their limelight right right now that there are uh, people are, are like have you played the game um that's not oh what was it called the one about the refugees in syria i should know what they're called what it's called the mobile uh, yes game. Bury Me My Love. Exactly. Uh, so Bury Me My Love was incredible because um, even though I'm I'm of Arab descent and I read a lot about, um, like I read a lot specifically about the Syria war, but the Iraq war because I'm from Iraq. Um, and I actually have family who live there and I went to visit, uh, like in Iraq, and I went to visit them when I was 16. And I saw the conditions that they uh, lived in. So I thought when the Syria war happened, I thought I was... Uh, in a very good position to understand their plight, even though I didn't live through it myself. And Bury Me My Love showed me how wrong I was, how the, the, the level of uncertainty and fear that these people went through. Like, you were, I had, they gave me a choice. Basically, I had um, the life of <laughs> a person in my hand. I, I was able to give them advice and they were going to follow it um, in very uncertain, scary times. And I froze. You just don't have enough information to make these completely life-altering or life-ending, potentially, decisions. And I just was not equipped. I did, And I didn't realize that I was not equipped. That kind of, of storytelling is powerful. There's nothing like it. Like, okay, like a little bit of background story, but my dad... Uh, worked uh, for the government in Iraq, and he was a part of the rebels. He didn't fight with a gun, like it wasn't that kind of fight. But what he would do is whenever someone who was part of the rebels would be found out, he would drive them to a border because he, he would use his credentials to get past checkpoints, and he would save their lives, essentially. That was his job because, um, you know, every pretty much everybody in Iraq hated Saddam for obvious reasons. He was a crazy dictator, and they wanted to bring him down. Um so, and I grew up with those stories and I actually lived it. We escaped from Iraq when I was really young and we were, we went from country to country, but I was very, very young. And even though I, I, I heard these stories, I hadn't internalized the fear or the decision making that my parents had to, 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 to make. And this video, this mobile game, uh, did a much better job of making me feel those feelings and understand um, those decisions 
than the stories that I heard pretty much firsthand. It's shocking. It it, it completely blew me away. So there's definitely like not only is there a, a, a place for empathy games going forward, but there's there should be a way more of a place for them going forward. No nobody um, there there's no other way to make people feel this kind of empathy than interactive media. There just isn't. Movies will not do it, and uh, you know video sorry and uh, like music will not do it. They'll they'll do a good job, but they're not going to have the same effect as you actually having that choice. You actually. Um, being that person, like you, the I part of it, me, I'm doing this, that doesn't come from any other media. Yeah, my uh, one of my former professors in my game design program, Lindsay Grace, always likes to point out that uh, do, like I do, is that's the only, or rather, games are the only medium in which you say I do. Yep. Whereas, you know, in, in videos, you say, oh, this character did that. When you read a novel, that character did this. But in video games, you talk about how you personally did the thing. And so what I'm hearing fr from you is that that kind of um, exertion of agency and decision making and having to be uh, both active and complicit in the act is what like gets down like deep into into the bones of empathy. Absolutely. There's nothing like it. There's no... Uh, there's no substitute for that. So one of the, the criticisms of empathy games that I've heard is that they, maybe empathy isn't the right term because these games typically tend to go for the feels. You know, if there's kind of a, a trend where if the game makes you feel something, especially if it makes you feel kind of a an unpleasant emotion like sorrow or grief, that it instantly gets tagged as a quote unquote empathy game when really it's just kind of making you feel feelings. And so I'm what I'm wondering from you is with Bury Me My Love or any other game that you've played that is supposed to be a quote unquote like social um, impact or empathy game, did it did it obviously it had an impact but have you have you done anything? Because I feel like that's what people are wanting from empathy games is not just for you to feel the feels, but for then you to take the next step. And uh, Gabby, who we talked to earlier, talked about, you know, empathy in action is actually compassion. And the act of empathy, I think, is where we want to get with in games. And so I guess bringing that all back, after playing Bury Me My Love, it had an emotional impact. It maybe altered the way you thought about things. Do you feel like it actually did change something uh, in you personally or anything in your behavior? Uh, yeah, actually, yes. Uh, I'm, I, I mean, you're, you're Facebook friends with me, right? I am. Yes. I'm so lucky. <laughs> Thank you. I'm the lucky one. But uh, so you know that I do volunteer and for, uh, I mean, basically I help. Uh, well, I used to more, do it more, much more actively than now for obvious reasons. But I used to help Syrian refugees um, basically get set up in Montreal. So we used to deliver furniture to them because oftentimes they would be given a home, a small home from the government, and it would be not furnished, and they would have a small allowance. And we met a few of them who would have to choose between food or furniture. And they had kids, and it was a very sad situation. Like they could only, they could afford maybe a chair a month. And eventually they built up their their furniture that way. So they were sleeping on floors and were very uncomfortable, but at least they were eating. And they were grateful. They were really happy and they didn't complain. But we were like, why? I mean, this is unnecessary. There, There's so much. Like, So what we did is actually my sister-in-law started this. I, I was just I was just a muscle. Uh, but that's why I asked <laughs> you if you're if you're my uh, on my Facebook, because I, I always constantly share 
um, her her efforts to actually say that this was as a re- direct result from playing the game. I think we started these efforts a little bit before, but this was definitely a way I was able to like that game specifically pointing to it. It was definitely a way I was able to get more volunteers. Does that still count? I would actually oh, point to them. To, <laughs> I would point them to the game and say that it's going to change your life. They would play it, and then next thing I knew, they were coming and helping us uh, do this thing. So uh, that, that's the closest I could think of. That's so beautiful. I'm like getting misty eyed <laughs> just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> but I'm sure you've seen me share those in the past, or maybe you're not very active on Facebook. I don't know. Well, I, I think I've seen them, and I've just never connected the dots. And even if I did, now our viewer, now our viewers, now our listeners do too. <laughs> Um, they know the amazing, kind human being that you are. Oh, no, don't, don't say that. That's not true. <laughs> By the way, oh, I just wanted totally to true. say that it did expand it also to Haitian refugees when the crisis happened. Uh, that's not a thing oh. I mentioned because it was started with uh, uh, Syrian refugees at first. Uh, but basically, whatever uh, country that Montreal specifically, because that's where we are locally, where whatever refugees would come uh, to our city, regardless of from where. And a lot of the people that we were... Um, that we eventually expanded to were just referrals that weren't even refugees. They were just uh, people who were down on their luck. And if we had a surplus, we would send things to them as, as well. It became its own thing. My sister-in-law runs it. I don't want to take credit for it. I just helped out. Like I said, I was just a muscle. That's I'm so happy I have this on tape. So <laughs> the next time you know someone asks me, you know, well, why are games special? And you know, what can a game do? I can just go here, listen to <laughs> Minute Marker like 47 on this episode, and you'll get to hear this beautiful story about how you know video games are literally like changing lives for the people who need Abs- help. Absolutely. So thank you for that. My pleasure. <laughs> it's a good, little little case study in in the power of games. <laughs> and it's a small drop in the bucket. We can do a lot better and we will do a lot better. And if I remember right, because I remember I was at Games for Change 2018 and the developer for Bury Me, My Love was there and I went to his his talk. And if I remember right, he was uh, communicating with a young girl in Syria. And that's how he got uh, like all that information. He actually talked to her about the, the struggles that she was facing and like the kind of decisions that she and her family had to make. And w- were you aware of that? Uh, I read an article about it. I didn't see the talk. But uh, actually, only after I played the game was a, did I become aware of the, the background story. Um, did that make it like even more potent? Yes. I, I played the game. I went into the game completely blind, by the way. It was recommended uh, by someone on Twitter. He said, he tagged me into this game, uh, into this thing. And he said, don't read anything about it. Just download it and play. <laughs> Um, uh, so I'm like, okay, it wasn't even a Twitter, like friend. It was just a mutual follow, like someone I've never met in real life. <laughs> and he said, Hey, like drop everything, play this game. It's going to be, uh, like, you know, life changing for you. And I kind of rolled my eyes a bit, <laughs> went on the, the app page, read the synopsis, like really briefly. It didn't get, it didn't give away much. Right. Um, and downloaded it. I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. Actually, I downloaded it and didn't play it for a month. Until I was just like on my phone on on the bus one day, and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this thing. I downloaded it, started playing it. Uh, this was before it started making very big waves in the uh, industry. It, like right before, I mean, like maybe a couple of weeks before. And I'm I'm so happy that you were able to to share that because that is a you know obviously a really terrible situation in the Syrian refugee crisis. Not exactly kind of the fun and games that people tend to think about when they think about games, especially mobile games. Like that's, that's pretty impressive. 
Absolutely. It shows us what potential we have. If people just think a little bit outside the box and are able to tell their own stories or what's meaningful to them, what they can accomplish with what other people have access to and never thought of before. This is just like, as I know we've been saying this for a while, but it's still just the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And you were earlier when you were kind of defining what empathy is, you talked a lot about the ability to take the perspective of somebody else and to really experience and have the the desire to understand that experience. And that's definitely coming across in you talking about Bury Me, My Love. And it also reminds me of your GDC talk, where you talked about the representation of Muslims in games. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, of course. Um, I'm not sure exactly where to start because this is a long story and I'm not going to give my whole talk on, <laughs> on the highlights. <laughs> the highlights. Okay. So basically, um, what, <laughs> what I, the, the reason I started doing this is because initially when I got into games, this wasn't a point at all. It wasn't to, to represent Muslims. I just really loved games growing up and I wanted to tell my stories through this medium. Um, and initially, uh, when I started working in the industry, the industry was actually pretty hostile towards Muslims for X, Y, Z reasons. I mean, the world was, so the industry was no different. Um, and Wait, lot- you, you, if I remember right, you said you started about 12 years ago? Yes. So that would have been about 2007? 2007, exactly. Okay, yeah. Nothing nothing important happened in that decade. No, so, no. yeah. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, so we were not riding any waves or anything like that. So what happened is um, almost like initially many of the games I, I worked on misrepresented Muslims. But you're, I was a junior. I was a junior in the industry. I kept my head down and I did what I had to do until uh, enough was enough. Basically, I worked on a game that, um, I mean, the series was or it was already misrepresenting Muslims. We were the antagonists and we had no good motives even at that. And we just hated America and wanted to kill Americans. And that was the end of that. And it didn't sit well with me, and I felt like icky, and I even, at some point, even thought about leaving the industry because of it. Um, and, and what it did instead is there was one particular scene where I just couldn't stomach it. There was a scene where the American army uh, were stationed in a mosque, and they were being bombarded by terrorists. And I'm like, wait a sec, this mosque is in a country you invaded, and the terrorists are just the locals. And what gives you the right? And I just like I couldn't take it. What gives you the right to do this? Uh, so I went up to the the, the the you know the powers that be, the directors of the project, and I said, "We can't, we can't do this. I'm, I'm putting my foot down." Like I've mentioned things slightly in passing in the past, but no, this this will not stand. You have to at least make a few changes. And the look of shock on their face, they didn't realize. Uh, they just didn't know that this was offensive or that this was bad. This is just like the, like video games, especially in that era. But like to this day, a lot of them are are very um, aspirational. They're not inspirational, right? They they're they're trying to be a Hollywood blockbuster, uh, and that's uh, that's shame. Like it's it's really shameful because we could we could do better in many different ways. Uh, so what happened? Did they did they change it? Did they take it out? So we compromised because they 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 said, look, if we had infinite budget, we would take it out completely. We would make the changes, but look, we're shipping in a little while. So the compromise was to change the mosque into a palace. And with each game in that series, or which each month that I was on those projects, um, I was able to fix a few things at a time. Until now, the franchise I'm not going to name, but it's still go ongoing. The antagonists are not specifically Muslim. They're just people from all over the world. And the protagonists aren't 
necessarily American either. They're just a counterterrorism force. And that was a step to me. That was a huge, huge achievement. And a lot of the, the good things that came actually after I left the franchise is just uh, by speaking up, um, I was able to affect positive change. And that, that put me on the path to starting to talk to other people about representing Muslims in a positive light. It was having people who I realized were not didn't have bad intentions this was just a default for them like and i realized that i mean i would not really get along with 19 year old me right i used to i used to think and do a lot of problematic things and then with time i was kind of, like i was lucky enough to meet some kind people who were patient with me and who helped me uh, see the error of my ways and to teach me and i realized that everybody's like that about something or about some things right so i i changed my my angle instead of saying hey this is bad and you have to change it and you're bad for doing it in the first place i just said hey maybe you want to consider changing this because this is how it makes some people feel and i always brought the business case because you know money talks so i say hey you might lose sales if you do this but you'll gain a lot of sales or these different markets if you try this um and that put me on that path so basically you, mo when you monetized empathy <laughs> i mean by any means necessary right the <laughs> the malcolm x saying that's not necessarily true in every situation but in this one i mean the end result i wanted something positive to come out of it and i and you have to speak to people in the language that they understand I, i'm that it's it's hard to uh, like you, you have to talk about what they value right that's actually part of empathy as well you put them yourself in their uh, position and you try to see what it is that would um, affect the, the change that you want in them and you speak to them from that angle right you give me so much hope um <laughs> thank you <laughs> for, for many many reasons but this one this specific one is one of the things that i like to uh you know stand on a soapbox and rant about to anybody who will listen is about the representation of mental health in games and how it tends to be uh you know really stereotyped really stigmatizing really inaccurate and just like really, really terrible. And so hearing you, you know, actually go and stand up and say, hey, this is not okay. <laughs> um, you know, no, not non-judgmentally the way I'm sure you did, but like this, this needs to change because this is problematic. Um, yeah. And, and the fact that they, they took that and that they have continued that change going forward, that gives me so much hope. Um, and maybe I just have to come up with the budget numbers to prove <laughs> that if you if you stop putting horror games in insane asylums, yes. your games will sell better. Yes. Um, I'll get right on that. <laughs> have you spoken to Sherry Ray? I do not know okay. who uh, who that Sherry is, Ray is, but it sounds like I should. It's someone I have to put you in contact with. Uh, she's an advocate for uh, basically disabled people in games to be represented. Like she she came to Warner Brothers to give us a um, presentation about how to represent people who have both mental, physical, all the different, different kind of disabilities in our games. And she mentioned insane asylums and she mentioned uh, wheelchairs and how they're usually decrepit and they're a symbol, like, a symbol for different things. And you should have seen, mine included, our eyes light up because I just I was not aware I was that that's what I'm talking about when I said I wouldn't like 19 year old me I mean uh, sometimes all you have to do is highlight a problem and people will go out of their way to try to solve it they just weren't aware of it in the first place and in this case um, and it's not just Warner Brothers she also came to Ubisoft in Montreal and she she travels the world she goes to Bungie she goes to all the big studios as an advocate she's incredible so is there is there any 
last things you want to share? Any other shout outs you want to give? Anything that you wanted me to ask that I didn't? Um, the only thing I, I want to add, and this is very obvious, but I think it has to be repeated. The only important thing is that we each all treat each other right. That's it. Basically, everything boils down to uh, treat people how you wish for them, for for you to be treated by them. Uh, and that's it. So if we do that, then everything else will be fixed on its own. Corporate cultures will be fixed and empathy in games will be a more powerful tool, et cetera, et cetera. As long as our intentions are to make things better for everyone else, uh, I, I feel eventually we'll so get hopeful. There. I feel so warm and fuzzy now. <laughs> Shortly after my interview with Osama, I had the opportunity to meet Cherry Ray at GDC. She gave a talk on disability representation in games that literally made me cry. And she's a wonderful human being and you should definitely check out her work. You can also follow her on Twitter, uh, which is at Cherry Ray, C-H-E-R-R-Y-R-A-E. If you have access to the GDC Vault, you should definitely take the time to watch her presentation. It's called You Can Take an Arrow to the Knee and Still Be an Adventurer. It's in the vault. Definitely take a look. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at BeyondGamesCast. You can also find us on the interwebs at www.ithrivegames.org beyond gameplay. Or you can email us at beyondgameplay at ithrivegames.org. Beyond Gameplay is a production of the iThrive Games Foundation, a 501c3 organization. For more information about how iThrive uses games and game design to prepare teens to thrive, visit us at iThriveGames.org. The show is hosted by me, Kelly Dunlap, and was produced by Sean Wyland with direction from Dr. Susan Rivers and Jane Lee. Our project manager, producer, and writer is I Am Trin, and our theme music is Mysteries and Inquiries by the noisy game maker, Ethan Goss-Alexander, who also helped edit this episode. Marketing and PR was coordinated by Kat Went. Special thank yous to Will Williams, Jonathan Elmer-Green, Sierra Martinez, and Jess Class. Thank you for going beyond gameplay, where humanity is the core mechanic. <laughs>